1: Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, welcome back to the show, and I'm excited to bring you Terry Cotman today as our guest. Uh, She is a friend and a colleague, and uh, let me just take a moment to read her bio here before we dive into this interview today. Terry Cotman developed Adlerian Play Therapy. It's an approach to working with children, families, and adults that combines the ideas and techniques of individual psychology and play therapy. She recently founded the League of Extraordinary Adlerian Play Therapists, LEPT, uh, which is a play therapy training center. And she created a certification program for Adlerian play therapy. Terry is a fun and engaging presenter, and she's the author who regularly teaches classes and writes about play therapy. She has co-authored with Kristen Meaney Whalen, the book Doing Play Therapy, From Building the Relationship to Facilitating Change, and Partners in Play, an Adlerian Approach to Play Therapy. She is also the author of Play Therapy, Basics and Beyond, and several other books. I'll put all of these links in the uh, show notes in 2014 she was granted a lifetime achievement award from the association of play therapy in 2017 she was given a lifetime achievement award from the iowa association for play therapy and in 2020 she reserved a third lifetime achievement award from the north american society for adlerian psychology so <laughs> she's she seems to be collecting lifetime achievement awards she is a ferocious uh woman who's made an incredible contribution uh, she has also been married to her husband, Rick, who's also a friend, um, and their son, Jacob, who I've also had the pleasure of hanging out with, and uh, of whom she says here she is inordinately proud. Um, so I couldn't be more excited to bring you Terry Coppin.
2: Thank you. This is pretty funny. I brag that I know you. So uh, my students read your books, and and they'll say, well, have you ever met this woman? And I'm like, oh, she's my friend. She's come to my house. She's brought me weird t-shirts from Canada that I didn't
1: understand because they had something to do with sports. Yes. <laughs> and you make me tie-dye underwear and people who know you will know that that makes complete sense. And people listening to the podcast for the first time are going to think that's crazy. Um, but you do do in, in um, so you're located in, C- now, is it Cedar Falls? Right. Yes. There's a bunch of little towns. So I fly into Cedar Falls, Iowa, and Terry um, hosts and puts on the most amazing dedicated training that you will ever get in your life and you always bring together an amazing group of people who stay lifelong friends and stay connected and it isn't just about learning skills of adlerian psychology and the application to play therapy which you've so masterfully done and made as the, I think a life contribution to the world around it but you know you you give us this this personal growth that happens in the course of the week you you don't come just to learn about kids you come to learn about yourself personally your background how you show up therapeutically uh, and it's incredibly moving thank you you're very good at what you do so the world here that is listening um there's people that listen to my podcast that know nothing about adlerian psychology even though i go out of my way to name the podcast parenting the adlerian way because i want people to know the name adler and what we're about um, some people are professionals, you know, pe- people that have taken your class, people that we've met at Cassie that tune in from around the world and tell their parents to tune in, people here from Toronto, um, you know, and then just just parents who want to better themselves or whatever. So there's a, a real diversity of people listening to this. Um, but I, I want to h- ask you the question, you know, to answer for both the lay listener and the expert. What the heck is play therapy? <laughs> and why is Adlerian play therapy different? Like, why do we call it Adlerian play therapy? Just play therapy. So have at it. How would you explain that?
2: Okay, so play therapy is a field of counseling or social work, like that is very specific to using play, using um using what's called mechanical communication, which is the, what people do as um, the tool for communication. It is traditionally done with kids from about three to usually nine or 10. Um, there are people, including me, who do play therapy with teens and adults as well. Because I believe that people are more likely to get insight, more likely to understand themselves, and more likely to make some changes based on what they do, not necessarily what you talk about. So you can come to talk therapy and talk your way all the way around an issue. And you can come to talk therapy and you can if you're a really good talker, you can <laughs> just talk and, talk and 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 never have a shift in the way you think about people. Never have a shift in the way you think about yourself. Never have a shift in the way you think about the world. Cause you're so busy talking. And so play therapy, the essence of play therapy is that if we get people to have an experience, get people to do some things differently, then maybe some shifts will happen. And so that's that's what it's based on. It was originally designed by um, Virginia Axline, who is the kind of the mother of play therapy, as a tool for working with children based on the premise that Children don't have the abstract verbal reasoning skills to be able to come in and say, wow, you know, I'm really feeling torn because my parents are getting a divorce. And I feel like if I'm loyal to my mom, then I can't be kind to my dad and I can't love my dad. And if I love my dad, I can't be loyal to my mom because I feel like I'm like the rope in a tug of war. So they've already, if they could say that, They've already given you a metaphor, but they can't really say that because they don't have the abstract verbal reasoning skills to be able to articulate that. Most kids, there are kids who can. Um, And so what they will do is they'll, I have two houses in my playroom and they'll take a little person doll and, and that little person will run back and forth between the two houses. And they'll have a mom figure in the one dollhouse and they'll have a dad figure in the other dollhouse and they'll run back and forth trying to communicate. I can't figure out where I belong because my family's different than it was. And I feel like I have to choose between my mom and my dad. And I don't want to have to choose between my mom and my dad, but I don't know any other way to do this. So that's what happens. And then I can, as the play therapist, talk to the little person. And I can say things like, wow, it's so confusing because it feels like you don't fit in your mom's house anymore and you don't fit in your dad's house anymore. Or that little person looks so discouraged because it feels like she has to choose And it's too hard to choose because she loves both of her parents. Or I'll say to the little person, hey, little person, I know this is confusing. I know you're confused because it's hard. And you love your mom and you love your dad. Children have more developed um, receptive vocabulary than they do expressive vocabulary most of the time. And so when I say those kinds of things to kids, they can hear them and feel understood and heard, even if they can't articulate that themselves. So that's the premise of play therapy, basically.
1: And then, but then you got to do this wonderful weaving, of adding the delirium. I mean, because we really stand out. A lot of people say, oh, I sent my kid to play therapy and they just played with some glue and, you know, uh, I don't know why I'm paying all this money. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, there's a lot going on in delirium play therapy. We are a different animal. Well, and
2: child-centered play therapy or non-directed play therapy, which is the traditional kind of play therapy in the United States, at least. There are three kind of... Um, most widely used play therapy approaches in the United States. And um, the first two are psychodynamic, interestingly enough, like traditional Freudian and, um, and child centered. And they are very non-directive. So they don't make interpretations. They don't ask kids to play with them. When I came along, I was doing Adlerian psychology with adults and I because the program that I was in had a heavy emphasis in child-centered play therapy, Um, I was kind of subtly, not subtly uh, encouraged to do that, do child-centered play therapy with children. And I tried that and after eight weeks of doing that, the little girl that I was working with who lived in a children's home, and I had to go pick her up at the children's home and bring her back to the clinic and do therapy on her. She said to me, how come you're fun and funny in the hallway and um, you tell jokes and we laugh and then we get in that room with the toys and all you do is tell me what I'm saying and I already know because I said it (laughs) and you tell me what I'm doing. I already know because I'm doing it and you talk about feelings and I don't like that. How come you're not your real self in that playroom? And I thought, how come I'm not my real self in the playroom? How come I'm trying to be someone different than I am? And I thought, oh, it's because I'm not being congruent with what I really believe about people. So I set out to make up a way to integrate the practice of play therapy, which I really believe in. And I do believe it's the best way for children to communicate. And traditionally, Adlerians did not use play. Up until the point that I developed Adlerian play therapy, Adlerians expected little kids to talk about their problems. Um, And so I wanted to retain the idea of the play as the communication, and I wanted to be able to do Adlerian things. So so I kind of made up Adlerian play therapy based on feedback from a seven-year-old. Who was who was a way wiser person than I was <laughs> at almost thirty. So I worked on figuring out how to integrate the Adlerian ideas and thinking about goals of behavior and thinking about kids are kids who will get sent to therapy are very discouraged and that um, they're dealing with their feelings of inferiority in ways that aren't working for them. And so, so I started integrating the ideas of. Adler and Dreikers into the practice of play therapy. And so my kind of play therapy is much more interpretive, much more, um, Lori Yazanek and Ken Gardner, who are play therapy, um, educators in Calgary talk about the, the, that there, there is an element in directive play therapy that they call immersion. And, um, Adlerian play therapy is the essence of immersive play therapy. So we play with kids. Um, We play with kids at kids' request. We play with kids at our initiation. And so we immerse ourselves in the child's play in in a way in order to um, create a sense of attunement. So the child gets the idea that, oh, this is a grown-up. Who is willing to communicate in the language that I communicate in? This is a grown up who is willing to play. And, you know, Adler said empathy is, I always get this wrong. I always get this confused, but hearing with the client's ears, seeing with the client's eyes, feeling with the client's heart. And I also add, resonating with the client's spirit, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that really is a way to create what Dan Siegel calls attunement and resonance. And so that's what I wanna do with kids. I wanna say to kids, I get you. I get your world. I get how you communicate. I get that you're a kid who loves to do board games. I get that you're a kid who loves to do art. I get that you're a kid who loves to move and dance. Um, and I'm willing to communicate that way. So if it's a kid who loves to do art, then I do art with them. If it's a kid who loves to move or do music, I do that. If it's a kid who loves to tell stories, I tell stories with them and I listen to their stories. If it's a kid who loves to have like explorers, I do exploring with them, et cetera. And I try to work really hard to match how the kid expresses themselves um, by expressing myself in that same modality.
1: And so, if you're a parent saying, you know, is my kid a candidate for play therapy? You know, who who, who makes up your practice? I, I know you. I've worked with kids in your practice that were just lovely children of your friends who were willing to help in a teaching situation. And even those kids benefited from our time. So, I mean, I, I kind of feel like the answer is what what kid wouldn't benefit from having these great interactions with adults that were attuned and being expressive? How can that not help you grow? But but if if, if you're a parent saying, is my kid a candidate for play therapy, like who, who do we help who, or who's out of our reach? I don't know. Different people will give you different answers to
2: that. Um, Adlerian play therapy, I think works really well with kids who have normal developmental problems. So like, like power struggles at school or feeling like a failure at school or whatever. So I do think, I think that that, that's part of it. So life circumstances, family circumstances that are causing the kids stress or distress I think are really helpful. Adlerian play therapy is spectacularly helpful with kids who are acting out, kids who are getting in trouble, kids who have behavior problems. It's great with them. Um, Kids who need to learn friendship skills, friendship maintenance, play therapy works great with them. Adlerian play therapy works especially well with them. Now, now I'm also going to tell you that there are diagnoses that I don't believe play therapy will fix. I do think that, you know, a stint in play therapy will help these kids, but I don't know. So a kid on the autism spectrum, depending where they are on the spectrum, is not going to stop being on the autism spectrum
1: because of play therapy, because play therapy is not a miracle cure. On yeah. um, autism, anybody, that's not the group. right.
2: My child has very severe learning disabilities and very severe ADHD. And and he went to play therapy when he was little. He's also adopted. And um, I the play therapist helped him, you know, think about adoption. And he already was kind of like, hey, mom, you're my mom. So I don't really need to worry about this particularly. But other kids were making fun of it. And he has he has kind of sketchy social skills. It was really clear that the play therapy wasn't going to stop him from having ADHD. It wasn't going to stop him from having a learning disability. And the play therapy helped him feel better about himself, feel better about um, how school was going. And lots of times for Jacob, although he's quite brilliant, school was a struggle for him. Um, it helped him learn to get better at making friends and keeping friends because Jake was pretty good at making friends, but he wasn't always so great at keeping friends, helped him get healthier about being an only child, um, an only child of older doting parents who pampered him. (laughs) (laughs) Self-diagnosing, (laughs) self-diagnosing. Yep. (sighs) And so you know it's not gonna it's not gonna fix something that is a medical biological organic
1: problem. It will help kids get better at dealing with those things. Yeah, isn't that the? It's not the cards you're dealt. It's how you play your hand. So you know, yeah, yeah we can help people with their functioning. You know, right. Play therapy is again not
2: a miracle cure. So lots of times parents come and say. Well, they say two things. They say, fix my kid. Don't jack with me. And in Adlerian play therapy, because Adlerian theory is a systems model, um, I say to parents, uh, I recently closed my practice because I'm in the process of retiring and handing the teaching of Adlerian play therapy over to a number of quite brilliant teachers. And though in my private practice, when people would call, I would say, they would say, so here's what's, here's what's up with my kid. And I would say, well, I I need for, I need for you to know that the way I practice play therapy is I never just work with the child. I work with the whole system. And so if you're going to bring your child to me, part of my perception of problems and Problems that kids in families have is that if one person has a problem, everybody else has part of the problem. Everybody else is contributing in some way, either as a secondary gain or in their reactions to the child's behavior, et cetera. And so I'm going to have the expectation that everybody come at least part of the time and be part of the solution to the problem. So I'm going to ask you to look at your behavior as a parent and ask you to make some changes in the way you think about your child and the way you think about your role as a parent in the way you handle like behavior problems, et cetera. I'm going to ask you to make some changes. Um, I'm going to teach you some skills, but I'm also going to ask you to be willing to have other members of the family come. So if it's a sibling rivalry problem, then I'm going to ask for the the sibling to come. If it's a, pampering by the other kid's problem, I'm going to ask maybe the whole family to come at some point. And parent consultation is an integral part of Adlerian play therapy. It's not an integral part of all of the approaches to play therapy, but it is in Adlerian play therapy. And some parents don't want to do that.
1: Mm. Yeah, getting
2: getting too threatening for them, maybe. <laughs> That's part of my pitch, I think, and, and I talk about how if, if you guys could interact differently in more positive ways, and I use the metaphor of a bank, so I talk to parents a lot about let's figure out ways for your family to put more positive energy or positive experiences into your bank because what gets us through hard times is having some deposits in there. So, so I talk to families a lot about what does your family do for fun? And it's a little shocking to me, honestly, because a lot of the families in my private practice would say, well, we watch television together. Or we play violent video games together. They don't say violent video games. We play video games together like Call of Duty. And I would think, well, that's actually not putting positive energy in the positive energy bank. So sometimes I have to teach families like, have you ever thought about having like neighborhood scavenger hunts? Or um, people always get weirded out when they come to our family. Our son is about to turn 27. And we have... You might have remember this or noticed this, Allison. We have dart guns. Um, we have uh, like Nerf
1: darts yes. in yes.
2: the curtains in our living room, because <laughs> still to this day, on a regular basis, we have dart gun wars in our family. And so we go on nature walks. Like, is Jake does Jacob love any of the stuff at twenty seven? Not necessarily, but he will talk about the times when we've done those things. And so it's really important. And sometimes you have to help people think about. And one of the things I say to parents a lot is, what did you do for fun when you were little? Before screens and electronics were so predominant, like, what did you do? And it's fascinating to hear, but like so many
1: kids don't know things like, like the game red light, green light or. What time is it, Mr. Wolf? It's, and I'm so glad that you're saying this because I think somehow parenting shifted and got very managerial um, and, and people got very serious instead of relational about parenting and to your point, like play being playful you know it's not only the language of kids in the learning domain of children or whatever but i believe that to your point we can do play therapy with adults there's something about play that invites us into this other part of our brain that is so relational so creative so freeing and if we just think that you have to be a managerial parent and make sure that they eat their vegetables, go to bed on time, get their homework done, check their agenda. You know, we live in that space of I'm being evaluated for my managerial qualities of raising a child. And we just we forget. Oh, my God. We're, and we're supposed to enjoy them, too. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, like we're supposed to enjoy them. <laughs> I forgot to
2: enjoy it. <laughs> I had a parent say to me, we could make tents in our living room. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or we could play that game where the floor is electrified and we can't touch the floor. And then the parent said, wait a minute, I don't let them climb in the furniture. I'm like, well, you could make
1: an exception, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I I mean, maybe I'm very thankful. I came from a playful family and uh, play was a value to us. And so I think that, you know, we had a lot of that. And I make the assumption that other families are just as playful. But to your point, when I actually ask and interrogate and look, you know, and the fly on the wall in the average family in, in Toronto, Canada... We don't, we're not playful. It's not part of our culture. I was the exception to the rule. And we really need to go back there, not as frivolity and wasted time, but as something that's really super important. Right. Because it
2: builds positivity resonance between parents and their children. And um, there's, a, there's a happiness researcher who knew that there were people who re- researched happiness. There are. Um, there's whole journals on happiness. So there's this happiness researcher whose name is Barbara Fredrickson who wrote a book called Love 2.0. And she also wrote another book called Positivity Resonance. But what she says is that, and she's got research to back it up, both psychological and physiological research. So she suggests that what we need to do is we need to redefine what love is. That love can be, instead of, you know this like romantic love or love for our parents or love for our children, which is also important, but what she says is that love can happen in little moments of connection. Mm. and And so things like looking at your kid and smiling, or just sitting. I don't get teary about this, but you know, like cozying up and just looking at each other or holding hands with your kid and then looking at your kid and looking at your hands and smiling. All those are little tiny, what I call sips of love. And if we do those enough, then it actually increases our mental health, like positive mental health, and increases things like. Um, heart rate variability, which is a good thing, and decreases high blood pressure, etc. cetera, those little sips of love. And they're available everywhere, those little connections. So like when I go through the drive-through at um, Starbucks, I actually look at the person who's giving me my drink and I say, and really want to know, how's your day? And I make eye contact and I smile And I convey, I actually really want to know. And those little sips of love actually create what is called positivity resonance. And they're super important. And we can create those in our families. Because what happens, I'm assuming this happens in Canada too. What happens in the United States lots of times is that people get so busy. And they're taking their kid to a sports team game and they're taking their kid to improv class and they're taking their kid to see their tutor, etc. And people are so scheduled that they are not taking time to stop and connect. And one of the things that I heard from lots of families during the pandemic, weirdly, was We have been doing more things with our family because we aren't doing things out in the world. And our family feels closer. Now, I know that didn't happen to every family. And I know lots and lots and lots of stressful things about the pandemic. But several of my friends have said that, like, I feel closer to my kids than I've ever felt before because I have had the time to just be with my kids. And play with my kids. Uh, one of my friends said, "I have played more board games with my kids than I have in, in their whole lives." Um, and and so I think that's important. And I think in modern day life, we forget it. We forget that playfulness is important.
1: Yeah and and therapeutic even if you aren't trained in the therapeutic things that you and I <laughs> know how to do just play period and being attuned right and and making those positive deposits in the bank account those little sips of love are therapeutic in the relationship and then and and then more so can we talk about the how you might do like a, a case conceptualization? I'm thinking specifically about like a presenting kid who's acting out. And I know you're going to like look at the family and uh, uh, the embeddedness, as you mentioned. But can you speak to to um, the four C's and 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 how you sort of speak? try to do an interpretation or a case conceptualization through that lens? Because I'm not sure everyone listening would have heard of the four C's. And, and we, we talk about that a lot uh, when we're working with kids. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So the four C's were developed by um, Amy Lou and Betty Lou Bettner. And they did some pretty extensive research when they were in their doctoral programs and looked basically at the literature about kids and what kids need fostered by families and schools. And what they came up with was a pretty catchy phrase called the crucial Cs. And these are things that they presented in in their work that kids need fostered. So they are courage, which is the willingness to try things without a guarantee of success. That's what courage is. Doesn't mean not being anxious. It doesn't mean um, never being scared. It really does mean: Are you willing to try new things, even though you don't know whether you'll be successful at them or not? Uh, connect, which is which I think has two main parts, which is the valuing of connecting with others and the abilities and skills to connect with others.
1: Mm.
2: Capable. Capable is, do you know that there are things that you do well? Do you feel capable? And do you feel like effective in um, in something or lots of somethings in your life? And the fourth one is count. Do you know that you are loved? Do you know that you make a contribution? Do you know that you are important and that you belong in positive ways? So when I have a child who's coming to see me, I do an assessment that this is, this is a little bit differently than how Amy and Betty Lou do it because I use the C's both diagnostically and prescriptively, and Amy and Betty Lou use the C's more preventatively, like let's help families learn to foster these things, let's help teachers learn to foster these things, which is absolutely amazing, and I totally advocate that. But if I have a kid who's struggling, what I'm gonna look at is, which of the C's is this particular kid struggling with, and which of the C's is a strength for this child. So what I wanna do is I wanna, as I work with the child, I wanna capitalize on the strengths and I want to help shore up the struggles. So, So say I have a kid who is in special ed and he's acting out and he mainly acts out at school and he's acting out because he feels like he's not capable. He feels like he's not smart. Then what I want to work with him on and say as a function of him feeling like he's not smart and comparing himself to other kids, he doesn't have very many friends either. So, and and his courage is okay, as in he is willing to try some things. And he does believe in at least his family that his family loves him and that he makes a contribution in his family. So as we analyze this, we think, okay, his count is okay at home at least, and he doesn't really care in some ways whether he counts at school because he counts so much at home. And he is having courage both at home and school, but where the main problem is, is the problem of capable and connect. So if I was working with the kid at school, one of the things I would do is I would work with the teacher to find a kid who is like a positive helpful kid who could take basically take this kid under their wing and i would work to to figure out the things that this kid is strong in in terms of capable so i use um gardner seven intelligences a lot but i think of them as gardner's 50,000 intelligences so i will say to a kid you know you are really Like helpful, smart, you help the secretary and um, you are a helpful helper to your teacher. And so something that you do that you really contribute, as in you count at school too. you contribute to your classroom because you notice things that need, need doing and you hop in and you do them. You know, I know you think you're not particularly good at school. And I have noticed when we play Uno, you know exactly who is winning. um, And you keep track of of how many cards I have. And you have some guesses about which cards are which color, etc. Because you pay attention to those things. That's really a math skill. Etc. And so, so what I start to do is I start to find ways that this particular kid is capable and I encourage them and encourage them, encourage them. Now with the friendship thing, the connect thing for the crucial C is I look at the kid and I think, what's up with this kid in terms of connect? Um, a lot of children who are low in connect, are low in connect because they either think that they're not particularly valuable, or they don't have good connecting skills. So, or they are not good at reading. I pay attention to, are you good at evaluating people's friend potential? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the kids that I work with really want to be friends with the, the two most popular kids in their grade who are not really interested in being friends with them. But they don't look around and think, oh, who else plays the same video games that I play? Who else likes the same sports that I like, Etc. And so one of the things I teach kids who are low in connect is I teach evaluating friend potential, which my friends think is the weirdest thing to do. But like if I go to a conference, like the first time I met, Allison, I read all her books and I was super excited, but we, we were we were at a like a faculty meeting. I don't even know if you remember this. We, they were giving us a tour. And I had been watching Allison because I was watching everybody who who were the other faculty members. And I'm thinking, well, who would I want to be friends with? Like and I pay attention to things like how lively are they? Um, are they funny? Uh, are they friendly? Are they bouncy? Because those are things I like in my friends. So I always am evaluating
1: friend potential. You knew you found another Tigger. <laughs> it's, it's true. We it's true. on our tails. Oh, my gosh.
2: <laughs> but you know, if I've got an Eeyore, then who the best person for them to connect with is another
1: Eeyore. Yeah.
2: Really? And if I'm, you know, if I've got a piglet, then who the best person to connect with them is a piglet or like a Christopher Robin, etc. So, so I'm really helping. I'm thinking about that. I'm helping it. Sometimes I go actually into the child's classroom and I evaluate who might have friend potential for this kid or I'll go out to the playground and I'll watch them because I volunteer to school, as you know. And so um, I do a lot of my play therapy there. And so I'm thinking about all those things because I want to beef up, I want to encourage the C's that they struggle with, and I want to help figure out a way to capitalize on the things that are their strengths.
1: And so just to do more application to bring this alive to parents, I'm thinking about the kid who, you know, makes a friend, but they they can't maintain the friendship because they tend to be bossy and controlling, so they repel people once they become friends because they're, you know, over utilizing their leadership skills for, you know, for lack of a better way of describing that positively. I'm sure you've seen that.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And so with those kids, what I do is I work on sharing power. Like, how do you share power? And so I play lots of like taking turns games. I play lots of board games with those kids. I do things like one of my favorite games to play with kids who are motivated to be in charge of everything is um, to play Uno Attack, which is have you ever played Uno Attack? It's I have not tell me about Uno Attack. Yeah. And I'm gonna ask so you about
1: video games too.
2: It's Uno, but what it is is it comes with a little comes with a little machine, and the machine spews cards. Oh so you press a button. And sometimes no cards come out. Sometimes 15 cards come out. Um, so, and so if it you know, if you can't go, you press the button and it spews cards. Kids cannot control it. And so ah. it's really a helpful game for kids who wanna control everything because it's a game that sets up, you can't control it.
1: Go figure.
2: Jenga is a great game for these kids too, because what it does is it teaches them self control.
1: Which is good. No trouble with self control. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. So you have to stop, you have to think. Jenga is great for kids with ADHD and impulse control as well. But in Jenga, obviously, we have to take turns. And it's based on skill. But I am not telling the kid they win or lose. Gravity's telling them they win or lose, yeah. basically. And so I play lots of games with structure so that the child has to share power. And that's my, that's my goal. Also, in the playroom, um, sometimes a kid gets to be the boss and sometimes I get to be the boss. I say that in the very first session. And so that's part of my deal is that sometimes you get to be the boss and sometimes I get to be the boss. And in every session, part of the time I'm the boss, part of the time you're the boss. Now, initially, I will choose for my turn things that I know the kid likes. So they get used to the idea of, oh, this person is in charge and it's still safe this person is in charge and it's still fun for me. So it's important to think about that. And remember, I'm also, as as you know, but the audience may not, as I'm thinking about kids who are going for power and that's interfering with their ability to connect, I'm looking at what need are they trying to meet through that goal of misbehavior. And if it's a goal of power, I'm going to look at why do they need power? Is Are they pampered kids? So they um, need to learn to share power. So are they kids who have too much power? If they're kids who have too much power, I need to help them experience a situation in which not having the power will feel safe. If they're kids with too little power, like their parents are Maybe also into control, and they are used to not having age appropriate power, age appropriate responsibility. Then I may do some things about giving them lots of power in the playroom so they can experience that, and then gradually say, and we're going to take turns being in charge because my purpose is to have them experience not being in control a hundred percent of the time and still be able to have a good time, still be able to feel safe. These kids are also kids who cheat. <laughs> <laughs> so when they cheat. So one of the things I, I don't label it as cheating because cheating because cheating has a moral valence yeah, to I it. Agree. It's yeah, got I a agree. judgment to it, but parents are going to say they're cheat. They cheat. And so what I say to kids is, what I call it in play therapy is changing the rules. So my rule is if, so if I'm playing with you, Allison, and you change the rules in order to give yourself an advantage, then anytime you change the rules, I also get to change the rules. I don't change the rules back to the original way, but I say, hey, I notice you're changing the rules. Looks like you're changing the rules in order to give you an advantage. So that feels not fair. And you know, I don't want to play if it's not fair. So I'm gonna also anytime you get to change the rules, I also get to change the rules. So I'm gonna change the rules in this way. So then I cheat. Yes,
1: right. And,
2: and <laughs> or suddenly
1: and fast.
2: Yeah, far fascinating become, thing is
1: what what how does the child respond when you get to also change the rules to your advantage? Well, generally speaking, they stop changing the rules.
2: <laughs> but sometimes it's like, so we have a dueling kind of, I'm going to change the rules. You're going to change the rule. I'm gonna, but see, I make it into fun. So then it becomes not about power. It yeah. becomes about, we're going to collaborate to make our own game up just because we are not following the rules that, you know, your family is laid down or the rules that are in the rule book we're making, up our own, we're making up our own game with a different set of rules. And I'm going to reframe that. And I'm always going to bring it back to we're sharing power. And it's safe. And it's fun. Because what I want to frame is we can collaborate in many different ways. We can connect through the play in many different ways. And and it's not fun. It's not even fun. Like for kids who cheat or kids who aren't willing to share the power, it's actually not fun for them anymore. It's like squeezy and I'm going to be the boss or I'm going to be in charge or whatever. But it's not, they're not having fun. And so, you know, sometimes I'll just get super silly on them, which they don't know what to do. So they're so intent on beating me or they're so intent on it's going to be their way. And then I'll just start making like making weird faces or, um, <laughs> or I'll I'll start doing a dance or I'll start singing. My singing is really bad, um, but I bring my iPad in. And so I'll start playing music and dancing. And they're like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, well, this isn't funny anymore. So I'm not going to do this. And then they're like, Oh,
1: yeah, it wasn't really fun. Yeah, that you know, I uh, I love the um, the line. Uh, the, it's not about winning the game; it's about whether you get invited back, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. If it loses its spot, great, you won, but nobody wants to play a second time. <laughs> what's, what's yeah. The, yeah. What's the point? I know that you do a whole course, which I have not done yet, so I don't expect you to like give me a one-on-one tutorial here. <laughs> but I'm so fascinated about how you have integrated technology and gaming into play therapy. And I know you co-teach this with your son and I know you're a very pro gaming family and I'm a very pro tech family. We game too, but how do you use that therapeutically? What does that look like?
2: So I don't necessarily. So I do a little bit of video games in my play therapy, but not very much truthfully. Um, The reason why Jacob and I started teaching the games and Jacob doesn't teach them anymore because um, he's a trucker now. And so I switched to teaching them with one of my students who's also a play therapist, but a big gamer and does Twitch and all sorts of things. Um, Neil Peterson, he and I wrote a book on video games
1: um, for play therapists. Um, so we're going to put the link, I'm going to make sure that everybody has the links in the show notes so that they can go find all this stuff. Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. So part of the reason why I started, I got interested in integrating video games is because I have so many kids who don't do pretend, pretend anymore. So what they're doing is in my playroom, they're playing out video games that they play. So they're playing out Minecraft or they're playing out 5 nights at freddy's which is a horror survival game which is a terrible game that children should not be allowed to play and or they're playing fortnite etc and so what i realized was that me just basically ignoring video games actually was not serving the kids that i work with well and so my my son is a big 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 gamer he was not allowed to play games until he was eight, which he will tell people that was heinous of his parents. Um, <laughs> He's still he alive to tell the stories. <laughs> he will also tell people that he hated the fact that in high school, we didn't let him have unlimited gaming time, that we metered his gaming time. And he is so grateful to us now for that. So it's parent's responsibility, I think, to know about the games their kids are playing. Yeah. And it's therapist's responsibility to know about the kids, the games that their kids are playing. And so many of our kids are playing video games. And one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated about and have a little bit of a soapbox about is that quite frequently, kids will come home and say, my friends are playing Grand Theft Auto. Um, please buy me Grand Theft Auto for Christmas and the parents will not investigate Grand Theft Auto and they will go out and buy Grand Theft Auto. Jacob, Jacob, um, a couple years ago before he became a trucker, um, worked for Best Buy and um, he got fired for this. But a family came in and said, um, we want to buy Grand Theft Auto. And Jacob said, how old is your child? And they said he's in third grade. And Jacob said, oh, no, you don't want to buy Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) You should buy Rocket League. That's an age-appropriate game for your child. It's a game in which you play soccer with cars. It's really fun and funny, and he can learn teamwork skills. He can learn, um, because Jacob talks like this because he's my child, he can learn delay of gratification. He can learn all sorts of skills that will serve him in life grand theft auto will teach him to steal cars rob banks kill police officers it's a game you don't women want to, <laughs> it's a game you don't want your third grader playing and he did get fired from best buy for that he thought but i saw. i i sold them rocket league but rocket league didn't cost as much and that's not what you're supposed to do apparently so I think that parents need to know about video games and they need to know about the video games they're playing. One of the things that parents quite frequently don't know about is that on YouTube, there are things called Let's Play. So let's play Assassin's Creed. Let's play Minecraft. Let's play Five Nights at Freddy's. And what what Let's Plays do is they show you a person who they who who's been recorded and playing the game and making commentary about the game, so you can actually see what the game looks like and um, hear the kinds of things that people who play it say. And I believe, well, people should be paying attention to the ESRB rating on the game and should be paying attention to the content descriptors on the game, but should also be paying attention to one of the things I think is really important is that families kind of have conversations about what are our family values. Mm -hmm. And they should be having conversations with their children about is this a game that actually reflects our family values, our values as a system is this a game that works in the way we think about people and how people should interact with one another and, and what, what's important in life, or is this a game who actually um, incorporates values that really are kind of violations of our family values? And I just think that's so important. And so a lot of what I do in the video game class is I teach people about the plots of video games, and every video game, just like every book, has basically a meta
1: metaphor. Oh, 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 say more. I love the meta metaphors. I love the Yeah, say more, say more. So, so basically,
2: <laughs> it, it, it has a, here's, here's a view of the world that's presented by this game. So Fortnite, for instance, which isn't quite as popular with kids as it was, but it's still quite popular in the United States. So so what happens in Fortnite is, well, Fortnite Battle Royale version, which is the downloadable free version, which is the version kids play. Um, You and 99 other people parachute down in a bus into a world. And the viable space in the world keeps shrinking. And the only way to win is for you to be the last person alive. And the way for that to happen is that you have to kill other people and steal their possessions. So the meta metaphor of Fortnite is, it's me against the world. And everybody's about to everybody's out to get me. And the only way for me to be successful is
1: to kill all the other people because you can't win and hide. Right. The game is the game is rigged so that the quality to win goes against our our moral compass and actually biological truth that we actually need to cooperate to stay alive. Um, yeah. It's, so it's miseducation. Correct. The meta message of Five Nights
2: at Freddy's, or what what kids will call FNAF. So the store, the plot is, and the best way to figure out what the meta metaphor is is to is to give you a little plot summary. So the plot in FNAF is that you play as a night watchman in a restaurant that's a pizza restaurant, and it has a band that are animatronics so they're robots Mm -hmm. that play music they're animals and the animatronics are programmed to get rid of anyone who they perceive to be an invader in the restaurant between midnight and six in the morning and so you as the night watchman cannot leave the office The only thing you can do to keep yourself safe because the animatronics are stalking you is to control the lights in the corridors. And if you can and if you turn on a light in the corridor, the animatronics have to freeze and you can close the doors to the office. You have limited power. And every time you close a door or you turn on a light, it uses up part of your power. And you have to survive between midnight and six in the morning. And they're sneaking up on you and sneaking up on you in the, o- and you can see them in the security cameras. So they're sneaking up, sneaking, up sneaking up on you and 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 sneaking up on you. And eventually they have what's called a jump scare, which is they jump out ah! and then you die.
1: I'm already anxious. Just hearing about it.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the children that I work with who've experienced trauma Love this game. Either play this game or watch Let's Plays on YouTube over
1: and over and over and over again. And what the does ne- what's the connection between the trauma and that game then? That they would seek so, that game out. So, and I remember. Okay. So I have a
2: theory, and my theory is that that kids who've experienced trauma after trauma or big, big, big traumas tend to kind of have an, a, a a need for an addiction to um stress hormones so they crave elevated serotonin and adrenaline levels
1: cuz that's their and baseline so, they want to stay in their baseline calm correct. Some god
2: correct correct yeah. correct just like alcoholics who need a, a base level of alcohol to function well trauma kids need stuff that's scary because that's what their pro their their body is programmed to to have the expectation yeah. of. It's their home, their their homeostasis. I'm gonna tell you, there's no research to back that up. That's just my theory. I mean, there yeah, might be I'm, research, but I'm not familiar with it.
1: Our, well, when I get my PhD, you work with me. We'll work on that together. I like that. Okay, because I think it's a great idea.
2: So the the mega metaphor of Five Nights at Freddy's is you are not in control. there, there, You have limited control of things and the world is a dangerous, scary place. You can't keep yourself safe. It's not reliable. That's the mega metaphor.
1: So they're, they're sort of, you know, in, in your hypothesis, they're almost like self-selecting to go into a world that's very familiar to how they've experienced world in the outside world. You know, and, you know, if you think about Adler talked about in, you know, in our dream states, that's where we figure out our daytime living social problems, you know, it, it, interesting that they would like put themselves into a similar situation where I guess they're figuring out, I don't know, if I turn the lights on, if I turn them off, or if I watch, you know, maybe that's their attempt at at reimagining and trying to gain control of their world on the outside. So fascinating. So fascinating. So- <laughs> So there are there are are positive mega metaphors, too. I just gave you two of the not so well and, and and very popular ones. And, you know, and I'll just I'll share with you. I was just working with a family. Again, you know, keeping confidentiality or whatever. Um, but some of the conflict was happening with the siblings playing on these games together because they're often they're social games, too. Right. It's very it's usually, you know, it's one of the components of gaming is that there's a social world that happens there. Absolutely. And and when I started when they started to get granular and tell me about why there was conflict online in the game and they really started to explain the details of it, which if I was gaming with them, I would have seen the nuances. But when I translated it to so it's like if you went to the park, but nobody would let you play on the monkey bars and your brother controlled the monkey bars and said that you have to go play somewhere else. Like when I translated it into in real life, physical world, the kids had this epiphany of why this transaction online was so shunning, um, was so ganging up on. Um, And I was learning it for the first time, just putting it into to your point about receptive language when I could turn it into, you know, they couldn't express it. But when I was able to say it verbally, they both kind of got it in a different way. And it was a bit of a turning point. So, um, you know, before parents just sit there and say stupid game, stupid game. I think we really do have to spend the time to get into their world and to watch those nuances and to watch how that all plays out, you know, seek first to understand, then be understood as, as uh, um, Stephen Covey says, or whatever, but there's a, there's a real world world of expression happening in that play. So one of the things that's interesting though, is I was talking to a group of
2: play therapists yesterday in a class and um, one of them has several teenagers and when I was saying that they needed to either watch their kid play the game or before they bought the game for the kid, they needed to watch let's plays. She said, well, I just don't have the time for that. And I said to her, you don't have the time not to do it. because If what we want to convey to our children is here's what our values are. And the things that, you know, like, Like, would we if if our kid came and said, hey, I want to go have a fight in the aisle out in the uh, alley. You know, we have an alley. I want to go have a fight with people. And so I'm going to bring I'm going to bring a a lead pipe and a tree branch. And I'm going to try and either whack somebody with them or skewer them with a tree branch. Would you say your kid? okay, go for it. (laughs) No. So, if you've got a kid who's playing games that suggest that that's an okay way to interact with people, it might not be something that you want to encourage them to play. And there are lots of positive games out there. Yeah. So, part of what I work with with parents and families on is let's find positive games for your kid to play. Let's find games that that involve collaboration and cooperation and communication. And there are some even, you know, like like I love the game Among Us, but it's about the fact that I'm on a spaceship with some other people and one of them is a saboteur and trying to kill everybody. And it makes me suspicious of everybody.
1: And that kind of is terrible. And I do love that game. But thankfully, so, your your worldview was shaped. I mean, we have to remember that in the developmental years, right from zero to five, we're laying down our basic personality, our private logic from five to ten. We're sort of testing out our hypothesis and, and cementing things. And then, you know, then as an adult, we can handle a little bit more in terms of holding up against our worldview. But if our worldview is shaped by. Around every corner, you have to have, you know, a branch and a stick and everyone's out to get you. You know, if if, if you're spending six hours a day like some of our kids are online and that's more how and especially during a pandemic where you're not out in the world to, to see a different perspective, you could see very easily where someone would say, well, that's mostly how I know life. And I've grown and responded and made decisions about how I should respond in accordance to surviving in that world, which is not really how our world, our in real life world is, right? Right.
2: In the United States and Canada, the average amount of time, screen time that kids from 8 to 16 spend is 8 hours and 46 minutes or something like that.
1: Wow. I know they were talking about changing the um, American Um, psychological associations, recommendations, because they were realizing that their recommendations were so out of line with reality. You know, they were really written before things became portable, before we had apps that do a million things and we multitask. And, uh, you know, I'm often talking to parents about, it. it's not, it's not the technology. It's, it's, it, you know, there is a, it's how you use it. It's how it's integrated. There's, it's way more complex than just demonizing screen time. It's far more complex than that. But,
2: yeah. but it, and the answer isn't tell them they can't play.
1: Right. Oh, because, my God.
2: Because that's not going to work. Yeah. So the answer really is how can we monitor and guide to the amount of time and the games played that are
1: um, congruent with what we want our kids to believe about self, others in the world. Yeah. One of the games that I we, we got just before the pandemic is literally a board game called Pandemic. Have you played it? Uh-uh. It's a cooperative game. And it is—it's not—it's um, you know there is very smart children who can play, but um, I—it's—it it is taxing me uh, mentally. It's a fantastic game, and it is about how the world all has to get together and share research and share vaccines and share hotspots and you know underdeveloped countries, and it really is about what is going on right now. And the whole thing, as you know, and as Adler knew back then, and he lived through the the, the first um, Spanish flu and and other things when he was developing his theory, is as human beings, it's not about competing and conquering. It's always about cooperation and, um, you know, social interest in our fellow man. And that piece is always going to be the successful formula for for mankind, humankind. Um, And we need to stimulate that because the world the world will there's be no shortage of competition not, we we don't need to worry about our kids not being prepared to compete but we sure need to worry about our kids learning how to care for others and, and cooperate and that's that's really the golden the golden coin in all of this right and and that gets uh, left to the to the wayside if we don't pay attention to it i have been doing a whole lot of encouraging
2: our families lately to buy cooperative board games there's lots of great cooperative board games out there um, and so playing Forbidden Island or um, Forbidden Desert or Pandemic, or there's a there's a game that's just a two-person game that I love that's a cooperative communication game called Gnomes at Night, which is hilariously funny. Um, and with younger kids, I'm trying to get parents to get um, Dinosaur Escape, which is about um, rescuing baby dinosaurs, but you have to work as a team
1: and they're super positive
2: experiences for families.
1: And, and you can, I have I've told parents you can turn a comp- competitive game into a cooperative game, depending on how you score it. Like when we would play Scrabble, we would do how do we maximize the board and we would add up the scores of everybody so that as a family you know the last time collectively we got 968 points so we played the board really well and this time we got you know a thousand and two so we're playing smarter together or in bowling same thing we would do the collective score so that if you're the little baby, and you throw the gutter ball and you get the two pin down. But if that was two points higher than the family score last time, you brought it home for the for the family, right? So exactly. you, can, yeah. you can take an existing game and make it a cooperative endeavor in the way that you, you, you know, I like to your point, oh, you're going to change the rules. I'm going to change the rules. We're going to do collective scores.
2: <laughs> when Jake was little, we would play apples to apples a lot, but we played it collaboratively. Um, and we play we play a game called Awkward Family Photos, which is hilarious. Um, and we do it collaboratively. So there's not a judge, but everybody has a conversation about which which one that somebody chose is funnier. And we and nobody gets points because we just don't do the points. Does
1: it, Yeah, doesn't need to be there. Just have the fun. Oh, my gosh. Terry, I want to give you the last word here. Um, I'm, going to put, I'm, going to, I'm going to put links to everything. Is there something else that you want to make sure that parents or, or practitioners listening take away from this and, and where else they can find you, follow you, continue this conversation? Play with your kids.
2: <laughs> connection, connection is the most important thing. I, I got an email last night from, um, from one of my Chinese, my students in China. And she said, I've been working with a little boy. And I've been practicing my skills and he's not wanted to be friends with me. So I decided to not practice my skills so much and just be with him. And suddenly something changed. And I sent her back a thing saying, the connection is the important thing. The connection is the core. Connect, 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 connect. If your kids feel connected, to you, and you feel connected to your kids, then any kind of problem will be surmountable, will be solvable. And, um, and have fun with your kids. Uh, I have a friend, um, Paris Goodyear Brown, talks about finding joy in your children. Because mm-hmm. if you find joy in your children and you're grateful for all of the things you like about your children. You can figure out how to deal with the things you don't like as much.
0: Yeah.
1: And they're there too, but perspective, but perspective, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I could eat you up. I miss you. I miss you. I miss you. Have a wonderful rest of your holiday. And I know that you want to retire, but you're not shaking me off anytime soon. (laughs) I'm not done learning. I'm not done being your friend. Many years ahead. Yes. Yes. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince.